Amazon. And if you do do that, we would like you to use Amazon.com slash protagonist. Nope. Dang. <laughs> Every time. Every single time. What is it? <laughs> Protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. Okay. You just flip them on the other All side right. of the slash. Okay. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Drowski. And I'm Todd Mack. How are you doing, Todd? I am well. We got the three-year-old down. It was a long and he put up a, a worthy... <laughs> he was a worthy opponent tonight, but I, I prevailed. All right. Well, we'll see if we get any cameo appearances. <laughs> I love my son a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Well... Listeners, today we are talking about all the heroes from the Marvel miniseries 1602. This eight-part miniseries was written by Neil Gaiman, our first returning author, I guess. We've had a couple other yeah, uh, like uh, actors that have appeared in a couple of things we've talked about, but I think he's the first one that's written two things we've talked about, and I think he's worthy of that <laughs> recognition. Yes. <laughs> Uh, written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Adam Kubert, digitally painted by Richard Isanove, and it had covers by Scott McCowan, and it was published between November 2003 and June of 2004. Would you have guessed that Neil Gaiman would have been our first repeat author? Uh, I don't know if I would have said for sure him, but I think he's one that I would have had on the list of potential repeat authors. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he's good. So, yeah. Who Would you have had a different guess? I don't know. I thought maybe we would have gotten around to like the second, you know, maybe the second Harry Potter or the second Hunger Games or the second something. Right. Those those all seem like they would have been. If, if I didn't even realize this was Gaiman when we were talking about it, and then and then we and then we I started reading it, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is our first repeat. So here we go. Yeah. If we'd done a uh, Shakespeare in the first year, we probably would have repeated already. I, that was one I was surprised we didn't get to in the first year. Yes. But you can only talk about, you know, 50 plus stories in a year. So how can you fit Shakespeare? That's right. (laughs) Uh, A quick version of what Marvel 1602 is. This is kind of what if the Marvel Universe had started up in England and the New World in 1602 instead of New York in 1963. There's lots of Elizabethan dress and palace intrigue and a dash of superpowers and a bevy of familiar faces set, you know, a while ago. So if that sounds interesting, the entirety of this collection is available to read in the Marvel Digital, uh, Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited. Is that what they call it? Or Marvel Unlimited. I think Marvel Unlimited. Marvel Unlimited is a general term for okay. it. Okay. When they first launched it, it was called Digital Comics Unlimited because that would stand for DCU or, or be the acronym DCU, which is what the DC Universe was often abbreviated for online. It's going to be Marvel kind of thumbing its nose at, at DC Comics. <laughs> it's kind of a mouthful. Yeah, so I think now it's just Marvel Unlimited, uh, which, again, great deal. Just so, so many comics. Uh, if this miniseries sounds interesting, you should just sign up for a one-month uh, membership, which is, I think, nine ninety nine, uh-huh. And you can read this, and then several hundred, <laughs> if not a thousand other comics in that one-month time, whatever you're able to get to. This is also available in a collected form with all eight issues in one bound volume that you could get on Amazon.com. And if you do choose to go that route, we would appreciate it if you would use protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And that would give you the exact same price, but give us a little bit of money to help keep the lights on here at Protagonist Central. There's a chance this could be available at a library. The first time I read it was it. It's one of the only books that I both checked out and read from a school library <laughs> in Not junior mine. high. Not my <laughs> library. Uh, so yeah, if, if that sounds interesting, number of ways for you to get to it. Uh, b- and before we delve into the full discussion, we would just like to remind you of a couple things. One is that. Uh, this episode of the Protagonist Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, and you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist, and there are over 180,000 titles for you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. And one other uh, note, we are still in the month of April, and our producer, Andrew, will quickly explain the promotion that we have for our patrons in the month of April. Yes, on patreon.com slash protagonist if you donate if you're new to donating to the protagonist podcast donate three dollars a month you get to buy a topic instead of the usual five dollars a month what a deal 
And if you are an existing donator, donator, donor, patron, (laughs) if you're an existing patron who is under the $5 mark, if you increase your donation by a dollar, you get a new topic. So if you were donating $1 and you just up that to $2 a month, you get a, you get a topic. You don't have to spend the $5 a month to buy a topic. And if you were a donor who had already gone to the $5, if you bump up to six, you get two new topics. We already have patrons who have bumped up to six and bumped up from uh, $1 to $2. $1 to $2. So we've got some topics coming. And if you donate now, you could be part of that. And we really appreciate that. We love doing this podcast, but it does cost money to do it. And so a little bit of help, uh, even, you know, that $1 a month, uh, just, just helps us out. We are giving you four dollars, uh, you know, four hours, sometimes even five hours of, uh, hopefully entertainment and maybe a little bit of education in a month, something to think about, uh, each month. And, uh, if you could support us through patreon.com slash protagonist, we really, really appreciate that. All right. All right, a little bit of trivia, Todd, about 1602 before we get to your... I I can't wait to hear your write-up, because this is a complex narrative that Neil Gaiman has woven. Uh, The comic book actually received mixed reviews when it came out in 2003 and 2004. Some, though, have argued that that's really just because Neil Gaiman's name uh, made some unrealistic expectations (laughs) for the series. People just expected too much. Um... The, the good reviews kind of just generally said, this is fun and it's being exactly what you want, it, what it, what it wants to be. But if you want this to be like, uh, a grand universe altering event for Marvel Comics, that's not what this is. And if that was your expectation, we're sorry, you're going to be disappointed in that. Yeah. But if you read this as something that's going to be fun and, uh, kind of an invigorating spin on some classic characters, then you're going to really enjoy it. And that's, I think that's what I would, I would say. This is not a life changing thing. Yeah. <laughs> this is not mouse. Or, or even Miss Marvel. Uh, but it's pretty good and it's fun. It's a fun what if kind of story. On the harsh end of the reviews, Time Magazine declared it the worst comic book of 2003. Which know? I cannot believe is true. <laughs> I did not read everything published in 2003, but this was not the worst thing published. Uh, there were three sequels to this comic, though none were written by Neil Gaiman. And this version of the Marvel Universe, the 1602 version, has appeared in a smattering of other comic books, video games, and animated series when characters visit alternate dimensions. Uh, and just kind of a, a side note, uh, Marvel ran a popular series that was called What If? And in each issue of What If? A question was asked about a key plot point in Marvel history. And that What If? series ran from 1977 to 84, and then again from 89 to 98. And it's been revived several times. They've done like kind of mini-series of What If? issues. Uh, almost every year, I think, in the last decade. And each issue of What If would be introduced by a character called the Watcher, who's this kind of cosmic universal being whose only role is to watch, but supposedly never interfere. Supposedly. Um, <laughs> supposedly never interfere with e- with events. Um, and it would usually, like, each of those issues would point to a specific moment in a previous previously published comic book, often even, like, showing the panel uh, from the comic book. And then the Watcher would show us what if one thing had changed in that particular moment. So here's this moment in the Marvel Universe, but what if, instead of A happening, which is what happened in our Marvel comics, B had happened instead. So, like, the first issue of what if, it revolves around a, a story from Amazing Spider-Man number one, in which uh, Peter Parker, or, or Sp- as Spider-Man, he goes and tries to join the Fantastic Four. He's like, I've got powers, I've got a costume, I'm a superhero, I should join your group. And the Fantastic Four say, uh, no, we're actually kind of set <laughs> with four, so we're not going <laughs> to let you join. And the first issue is, what if Spider-Man had joined the Fantastic Four? And it shows you the exact panel when Spider-Man's asking if he could join the team, and now it says, now let's show what happens if Spider-Man had, in fact, joined the Fantastic Four. Uh, and so this 682, a lot of people kind of said it's it's like a grand and kind of a, a high-prowl version of, of Marvel's What If. Uh, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, just a, a fun side story that doesn't really impact the main Marvel universe. And there's a, there's a talk or an article by Neil Gaiman. I'll have to look it up and put it in show notes. But it, it talks about um, where do stories come from? And he says... He says, adults always ask me where my stories come from, and I tell them from my head. <laughs> and, then, and then they sort of leave embarrassed that they asked him this question. But he says, when kids ask me the question, then I feel like I actually have to really give them an answer, because he seems to respect children more than adults. <laughs> and so he talks about the importance of the question, what if? And he says he'll often, that that's where, that's the genesis of many of his stories, is just thinking about what if... You know, what if, and then he goes off on these series of things and every one of them sounds like an 
absolutely incredible story. <laughs> He's very good at doing what if, and you can imagine Neil Gaiman at some point, like sitting at a Shakespeare play or something and thinking, what if, uh, Matt Super Murdock heroes. just showed up here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just a side note, if any of our listeners are fans of Neil Gaiman, uh, you should get your hands on a new short story collection that he has out called trigger warning. Uh, but his introduction is just kind of his philosophy around, uh, writing and what story should do, which is just a fantastic read. I thought you were going to bring up the comic book story that Neil Gaiman wrote for Sandman, where he imagined, what if in a Shakespeare play, it was all inspired by actual <laughs> fairies? Yes. <laughs> and what, he won the, uh, world fantasy award for that one. Yes. Yeah, so what of the, so he... Neil Gaiman wrote a comic book series called Sandman, which kind of put him on the map as far as a literary writer and also really helped to elevate, uh, the general opinion of comic books <laughs> with, uh, with a more literary highbrow crowd who would traditionally look their, uh, down their nose on comics. But one of his most famous issues is, uh, William Shakespeare walking down the road and then he encounters the fairies from a midsummer night's dream and, uh, gets spun into their world and, and comes out saying, like, I've got to tell their story. Uh, like, that's part of his deal that he made with the fairies was to tell their story. And I thought you were going to say, if you really like Neil Gaiman, you should listen to our previous episode uh, of this podcast in which we talk about The Graveyard Book, which is a fantastic book by Neil Gaiman. Yes, and while, Todd, you uh, when you when you do your uh, long summary, I'll look up what episode number that was so we Perfect. can be more specific. Uh, but real quick, before we get to your summary, how did you come to 1602? I, um, this was in my very earliest days of reading comics, which was probably, I don't know, two years ago, <laughs> three years ago. And I, I, the, so before Marvel Unlimited existed, Marvel had its own standalone app. And I downloaded that app. And they would occasionally have like sales in which they would sell the first like two issues of a, of a series at a dirt cheap price, like 99 cents or even give them away for free, uh, to kind of get you hooked. And this was one of them. So I read the first two issues and I thought, Oh, this is so cool. And then I saw that the next one I actually had to pay money for. And I was like, nah, I'll just stop. <laughs> so I read the first couple and I thought it was really cool. And it's been something that I've wanted to come back to. And as we were discussing what, what we could talk about for our next comic, I thought, no, oh, I'd like to go back and revisit that and finish that story. So that's where it came from for me. So this is a, for me, it's a series that I actually read in its monthly release when it was coming out. So I read a lot of comics in my teenage years uh, and then kind of as we were wrapping up high school and I started college and I went to Mexico for a couple of years, my comic book reading waned and I didn't really plan on ever getting back into it. Uh, but then in college, I actually started writing a couple papers for English classes on comics <laughs> and it kind of pulled me back into the <laughs> world. And this was one of the, like the first big events I remember happening when I was starting to read comics again, uh, you know, and get in, um, a little bit more into that whole world. And this was also early two thousands. Like it was. The internet isn't what it is now <laughs> or wasn't what it is now, I guess. Uh, and it, uh, but there were some comic book websites. I, I just remember like the slow pull up of like clicking on a link and, <laughs> and waiting for, for things <laughs> to appear. But I remember reading articles on a couple of comic book websites that were like speculating about where the series was going to go, which is something that I don't really have now. Cause I don't read very many monthly comics at all. I, mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't read any producer. Andrew handed me a, a stack of some uh, recent series that I should read, but I, I don't consume comic stories in that month to month style anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it was really interesting for me to reread this now, which it's the first time I've read it since it came out and be able to just like click through to the next issue right away. And it didn't have that month of speculation, both personal uh-huh. and also uh, the online speculation. And so it made me think a little bit about our discussion last week when we were talking about murder, she wrote and, uh, that series versus a more modern series, which is designed around, um, having some long, sure. long form threads and like the way you consume stories changes your relationship with them. Yes. And this quick binge essentially of, of this eight issue miniseries was such a different experience than reading it across eight months when you're only getting one chapter a month and they end with cliffhangers and they leave you guessing about who characters are cause they don't reveal like, we know these are all Marvel characters that we're dealing with, but they don't reveal who each one is, uh-huh. um, throughout. And I, I just, it, it was kind of interesting to, to think a little bit more about how our mode of consumption changes our relationship with the story. That is interesting. It reminds me of a class that I took uh, in grad school. It was about uh, 19th century novels, serial novels. 
Mm-hmm. And our teacher released a, a, a novel. It's the most popular novel from Spain from the 19th century, and it's completely out of print and has been forever because it was like nobody reads it anymore. But it was it was like a, a popular success. And she released it to us in PDF form through iTunes weekly. So you could only you couldn't read ahead. You, you could read ahead. you could only read the section that she gave you, and then you had to wait a week before she would she would send out or it, it, yeah it, it was a week in between and it was kind of, I think it was kind of cool and I I mean as crazy as it sounds today uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future somebody decided to move back to that model and say you know what we're gonna give you one thing and then you have to wait a while and then we'll give you something else uh, didn't uh, Stephen King do that with I mean, this might even be a decade ago at this point, but wasn't uh, the Green Mile released in like serialized form? I don't know. I don't. I, I, I want. I think that's like the most recent famous example of uh, I think okay. an author experimenting with that. But I am sure there exist websites where a writer is like, well, uh, even uh, we talked about Gunner Creek Court. Gunner Creek Court, yeah, yeah, that's a page a week, right? Isn't that? Yeah. So that's kind of like that, and uh, I'm sure there are websites where like a chapter gets released each month for a book from a from an author somewhere. Yeah. I think the internet makes a. Uh, you know, new options for that kind of model. Okay. Well, are you ready for this? Yes. I really look forward to hearing your summary. <laughs> you might want to sit down and grab a drink. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, uh, this is quite a story. Last week we talked about as your classic, uh, the quiet man summary. <laughs> I don't think this will be as long as the quiet man summary. Um, but last week we talked about, was it last week or two weeks ago? I think two weeks ago we talked about how some, some narratives are like pretty straightforward and others are not. And this is certainly in the others are not category. Yes. For our summaries, we just have found that uh, when there's lots of like split action, that's when our summaries get a little harder to write. And this one has so many splits, like two pages in one scene and then the next scene's at a continent away. Andrew, have you read this? Yes. In junior high. In junior high, but not since then. This story begins with a conversation between the queen of England, Elizabeth I, uh, her head of spies, Sir Nicholas Fury, and Dr. Stephen Strange about a mysterious box that must be brought back from Jerusalem without the French or the Portuguese or the Spanish getting their hands on it. Then we cut to a young angel, the the X-Man angel. I mean, a guy with wings who looks a yeah. lot like Angel. It, it's Angel. <laughs> who is being held in prison by the Spanish Inquisition. Then we cut to a tavern where the blind Matthew Murdoch is trying to make a living as a, a singing, like a bard. Uh, and then he has a secret meeting with Sir Nicholas Fury and his young assistant, a lad fascinated with spiders called Peter Parqua. <laughs> uh, back in the house of Stephen Strange, he sends himself into a trance and then he tells his wife Clea what he sees. He sees a boat upon the waters. He sees the young angel locked in the tower of the Spanish Inquisition and he sees a nun dressed in red uh, robes who senses Strange's present, uh, presence and then banishes him. Uh, now we're inside the tower of the Inquisition, and this red nun called Sister Wanda speaks with the Grand Inquisitor. He tells her he suspects Javier will try to free the prisoner angel and orders extra guards to be set. Then he speaks to his secretary, Petros, about the situation in England. The queen is ailing, and he hopes to put James from Scotland on the throne. Together they will fight the magicians and the witch breed. Uh, meanwhile, on a boat crossing the Atlantic, a young woman called Virginia, uh, Virginia Dare, who is an actual historical person, who is the first colonist, uh, English colonist born in Roanoke in the Americas, uh, she is traveling to England to meet Queen Elizabeth. She travels with her Indian body- bodyguard, uh, and who is a blonde Indian. Uh, she wonders how many people live in London. Then she asks him what happens if she changes again. He says, no one will hurt you. She replies, I know, but what if I hurt them? <laughs> Which is a really cool, it's a great moment, I think. Yeah. Uh, then we get this nice bit of exposition between Peter Parqua and Nicholas Fury. Uh, Sir Nicholas tells Peter that the Knights Templar were a group of warrior monks who were in charge of protecting routes between Europe and Jerusalem. They were supposedly wiped out centuries earlier, but rumor has it that some survived and they protected a great secret treasure in Jerusalem. Now we're back in Spain, where Angel is about to be burned. Then two mysterious monks show up. One has red eyes from which he fires red beams. The other shoots ice from his hands. Uh, they rescue Angel, and they tell him to meet him at the bay. They are witch breed, and they will take him somewhere safe. 
Uh, now back in England, the queen dreams of an old man who carries a, the powerful cargo. He's the, he's got the this uh, the box from the Knights Templar. And the end of the world is coming, and everyone hopes it's not too late. So there's crazy, like, weather phenomena. It's raining lizards. Red skies at noon. Red skies at noon, and lots of lightning coming from clear skies. And everybody's assuming that the world is going to end. And the only thing that will that will save the world is whatever is in this box. Uh, and now we're on a boat somewhere, and Angel is asking all these questions of his new friends. Uh, they tell him they are witch breed, people with special abilities. Uh, the leader of this group, or the, the, I guess the current leader, or the acting leader of this mission is Scottius Summer Isle. <laughs> and the Iceman is Journeyman Robert Trefusis. And at the helm of the ship is Apprentice John Gray, who looks a lot like Jean Gray, but is apparently uh, a boy at this point. I mean, they, they, they are saying that she is uh, a boy. Although, she looks a lot like... Spo- spoiler warning there. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> this looks like Jean Grey to us. Uh, they take, uh, they take uh, Angel to England, where their master has a schoolhouse where they will be safe. Soon, Sir Nicholas decides to visit Don Carlos Javier's School for the Children of Gentlefolk. Uh, there he meets Henry McCoy, also known as Beast, uh, Robert... Scottius and uh, Werner, who is Angel, as well as the page Master Gray. This is uh, John Gray, also known as Jean Gray, uh, a girl dressed as a boy. Meanwhile, Peter Parquois has been tasked with taking young Virginia to see the Queen. Uh, he is persuaded to let her bodyguard, Rojaz, Rojaz, I guess we'll call him, Rojaz, along with them. So the bodyguard is this great big blonde Indian. Uh, Matthew Murdoch, now switch, <laughs> shift again. <laughs> this is uh, Matthew Murdoch, uh, who is the blind bard. Uh, he meets with a woman dressed in black called Natasha. She is going to help him get the treasure back to England. So they're going to meet the old man with the cart, and then they'll pick up the the, the package and take it to England. Uh, then we find out that Count Otto von Doom, the handsome of Latveria, is also tracking the treasure. Now, Petros, who is the secretary of the High Inquisitor in Spain, he takes a message to King James of Scotland. Uh, they want to work in alliance to take down Queen Elizabeth, who, in James's words, has lived too long. Just uh, sort of ominous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Javier now tells Nicholas, so this is Carlos Javier, the head of the school, the blind, or the, the bald, crippled head of the school for the children of gentlefolk. Uh, he tells Sir Nicholas Fury that there are three assassins that have been sent to England. One was sent for Nicholas, and he's already been captured. One was sent to kill Virginia Dare, and one was sent to kill the Queen. Uh, Virginia goes in and visits the Queen. While they speak, someone swoops in and captures her. Rojas, the bodyguard, tries to save her, but she vanishes. And then we see her on the rooftop, and she's hiding, and she has been turned into a giant, big, white, flying monster. Looks something like a griffin. Yes. Uh, Dr. Strange and Rojas are able to capture her, and then Strange casts a healing spell on her that brings her back to her normal form. Uh, Fury appears and is confused and is asking what has happened. Someone who doesn't like the idea of the Inquisitor working with James sends an assassin to kill the Grand Inquisitor. He does not realize... Do you want to say who that someone is? Um... Isn't it the Pope? Yes, it is the Pope. Thank you. <laughs> he does not realize that the Inquisitor is bum, 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 Magneto, who ends up killing the man with his own knife. Uh, Nick, Not Magneto's knife. The man's own knife. With the man's own knife, yeah. So the man is going to kill Magneto, but the last thing you want to do is bring a knife to a fight with Magneto. <laughs> uh, unless you bring a gun to a fight with Magneto. <laughs> There's a lot of things you don't want to bring to a fight with Magneto. Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Nicholas meets with Queen Elizabeth. Uh, he warns her of a plot to kill her. Uh, she's not really worried about this. She sends, um, then Nicholas sends Peter Parqua to fetch Strange, who will attend to Virginia until she wakes up. This is such a confusing story. We hope you're following this, listeners. <clears throat> Nicholas sends Peter Parqua to fetch Dr. Strange, who will attend to Virginia until she wakes up, because she's still recovering from turning into a griffin. Uh, then... That takes a couple of days if any of you have ever had <laughs> that ever, happen to you. Hey, I saw, I saw, uh, Lady Hawk. <laughs> it's, it's not an easy thing to be uh, constantly changing back and forth from an animal to a, and a griffin. My goodness. I mean, she was just turning into a hawk. Uh, so, uh, Peter then meets an envoy who brings a gift to the queen 
from Von Doom. So Otto Von Doom has sent a gift to the Queen, and Peter Parquois is has gone to meet the envoy. Now we're back in Doctor Strange's house, uh, where Peter finds a beautiful black spider that Strange tells him was a gift from a friend called uh, Sir Richard Reed, who has now passed away. And the spider's venom, he tells young Peter, contains many secrets. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, so I just want to say, so we have this Peter Parqua running around, and I love how he's constantly around spiders, but he's never bit by one. No. You're like, it's great. You're like, oh, it's going to bite him, and then it doesn't. <laughs> and they're always special spiders, too. Yes. <laughs> they're just there, but he, he never interacts with them. No. I mean, he sees them, and he thinks that they're cool, but they never yeah, bite him. Yeah, he's kind of obsessed with you them. You think that they're going to bite him, and uh, and they don't. Well, we'll see. Uh, so now Dr. Strange sends Peter out of the room, and then he questions Rojaws, the bodyguard, uh, who tells him that Virginia has changed form in the past. It's always when she's scared. It's always a white animal, but it's always different forms. Dr. Strange says that the key to all of the earthquakes and strange climate is in this room. At this very moment, Nicholas interrogates one of the captured assassins, who tells him that he was sent by Von Doom. It's too late because... Now, if you remember, there was an envoy that had sent a gift to the queen, and it was full of a poison gas, and it killed the queen. So the queen Just is dead. a general rule of thumb. Never accept a gift from a man named Von Doom. No. Really, uh, uh, words to live by. Uh, so now King James of Scotland is the new king, because the queen is dead. And he orders Nicholas to attack Javier's school and to capture or kill everybody that he finds there. Uh, if he fails, James tells him he will end up in the tower. Now, Natasha and Matthew, remember them, they were going to go and meet the old man with the cart. They're nearing the place where they're going to meet him, uh, but then Natasha knocks Matthew out and she throws him off of a huge bridge. Um, Nicholas uh, is unable to refuse his new king's orders, so he sends Peter to warn Javier and his pupils of the coming attack. So he says, I'm coming with an army. Run and tell Javier that we're coming. Um, now we're back in, uh, we're in Latveria, which is the kingdom of Otto Von Doom, the handsome. And he has some very important prisoners. And one of them is teaching Von Doom science in exchange for, uh, the preservation of his life. We don't know who this is yet. Uh, but it seems like somebody very, 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 very smart. As Natasha tries to capture the old man with the treasure, Matthew shows up again, but Natasha has an army of Von Doom's soldiers at her command, and she captures the treasure, the old man, and Matthew Murdoch, the, the devil master spy. Uh, now, Nicholas shows up with his army at Javier's school, and he takes Javier and his students captive without a fight, and he promises to protect them. Now, Von Doom has the treasure, which is a mysterious locked device. It looks like a big golden sphere. Uh, and his super smart captive, who we now know is Richard Reed, of the four of... Reed Richards. Reed Richards. Yes. Uh, of the Fantastic... No, the four of the Fantastic is the name so of their team. They were on a ship called the Fantastic. The Fantastic. Uh, he tells him, forget about it. Uh, Von Doom cannot forget about this, this, this lock device. Um, by now we figured out that Von Doom's prisoners are the four of the fantastic. Um, Strange Fury and Javier hatch a plan to send Javier's students to Latveria to free Reed and his friends, as well as Murdoch, the old man and the treasure. <laughs> so the X-Men are going to go save, uh, the fantastic four, the old man and Daredevil and the treasure. Yeah. Okay, so now we find ourselves on the moon. Yes, that's right, the moon. <laughs> and we're watching a conversation between Doctor Strange and a giant-headed man called the Watcher. He kind of looks like a Megamind. I love. I really love Megamind, um, and I love. I love the Watcher. Uh, he tells Doctor Strange that the only, not only is Earth about to end, but the whole entire universe is just a breath away from being snuffed out of existence. Not just this universe, but all universes. And now at this point, we have to get into a little bit of Marvel, uh, Marvel multiverse lore here. But the Earth that has the general, like, comic book continuity of the Marvel universe is called Earth 616. And that's the Earth that we're talking about here. Um, so he says, not only will Earth 616 and the universe of Earth 616 be destroyed, but all other universes will be destroyed. Uh, and that means that the Watchers themselves will have nothing to watch. And that's a problem. And so he tells, he, he says, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to intervene in this situation, even though I'm not supposed to, because if I don't, then my people have no existence, just like 
just like no nothing else just has like any the entire universe and all universes right so he says i'm going to tell you this thing but you can't tell anybody as long as you're alive you can't tell anybody what i'm going to tell you which puts dr strange in sort of a pickle <laughs> um and we'll be talking more about pickles later uh <laughs> with dr strange <laughs> dr strange um so, so the watcher tells him that someone or something was pushed through a hole in time from the future into this, into this 1602 world and that that's what's causing all the damage and that this person must be sent back into the future. Uh, the heroes we are seeing seem to have appeared because heroes always appear when the world needs them. Uh, so now a great battle ensues between the X-Men and Von Doom's troops. Uh, Murdoch and the old man escape as do all of the Fantastic Four. Um, the old man has Murdoch help him get his staff, which he says is actually the real Templar treasure. So the, the big gold sphere, that was just a total, uh, fake thing. The real well, treasure. It was a real thing. I mean, it was a real was, thing, but it wasn't the real thing that was. Yeah, it wasn't the real treasure. It wasn't the treasure. The treasure is the staff. Like, it's still a bit of a problem that Doom has the gold thing. Well, he tries to open it with lightning and the lightning blows up in his face. And now he is no longer, uh, Otto the, the handsome. He is yeah. Otto the metal faced something uh so the old man takes his staff and he hits it on the ground and all this lightning comes from it and then he turns into thor and they make their getaway um in spain petros who is this uh super fast uh he's quicksilver um he returns to give his report to the grand inquisitor uh, aka magneto but he and his sister wanda and the inquisitor are all captured by uh by the pope's henchmen and they're sentenced to be executed but the grand inquisitor is magneto and so he easily easily escapes because they bind him in chains <laughs> which is also bad bad move uh, i don't think they really quite understand who they're dealing with <laughs> um king james uh now captures dr strange and he beheads him cuts his head off and sticks it on a on a pole on a on a on a pike pike and then uh clea who's dr strange's wife okay this is a little this this part <laughs> This is where I got a little bit lost. She's talking to his ghost, and he tells yeah. her that she has to return the Forerunner back to the future through the door through which he came. So this person that came from the future has to go back through the same door, which is in the New World. Uh, so she takes his head off the pike and uh, and escapes. Now, during the Battle of Latveria, Jean Grey, who was John Grey, but is really Jean Grey, had kept the X-Men's boat floating with her mental powers. Yes, uh, I failed to mention that they f they floated in a boat from England to Latveria. And Jean Grey had kept it floating, but it was too much for her powers, and she died. And the despondent X-Men burn her body, uh, which then turns into a giant floating phoenix. Uh, Clea now helps Virginia and Rojaz, Rojaz, to escape. They get on a boat headed for the New World. King James sends Peter Parquat to the New World, hoping he will kill Nick Fury, Nicholas Fury. Uh, Magneto and his new brotherhood are headed also to the New World. So everybody's headed to the New World now. A lot of converging. A lot of converging. It's, it feels like this is going to come to a head. No pun intended, but you will, you'll find. And just... <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't, can't help myself. Uh, Clea asks Virginia if she could find the rift in the time. So they're trying to find a place where there's some magical light shining in the forest. That's the rift where, uh, where the person from the future came into the past. Uh, she suspects that Virginia is the forerunner. And a lot of people think that. Virginia seems, she's mysterious. She's a shapeshifter. Everything seems to be circling around her. So everyone assumes that she's the forerunner. She's the one that they have to throw in to this portal and send her back into the future. Uh, but it's actually not. Now Rojas speaks, and he is. Have you guessed it yet? I totally did not see this coming. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. I want to talk about this. I did not see this coming at all. Rojas is Steve Rogers, Captain America. Okay, I'm so glad you didn't see that. But we'll talk about this after okay. you're done with your, your summary. <laughs> so here's what happens. In an alternate universe... There is a version of uh, Steve Rogers, Captain America, who uh, stuff just goes bad in the Uni in the United States. But he also outlives all the other superheroes. Right. Everything goes bad, and he outlives all the other superheroes. And then there's a guy who becomes president, and he's purple, and he says he's going to be president for life. And that is just too much. Uh, and Steve doesn't know what to do. And this guy wants the the purple president wants to kill. Captain America, but he doesn't want to kill him and leave his body there. So they do something to him in a lab and they send him 
like into another dimension, basically. And he wakes up naked living among Native Americans in 1602. So what they did was they just sent him away. Sent, yeah, they were trying to get rid of him without here. leaving a martyr's body there. Okay. So, uh, so the Native Americans let him in. He becomes one of them and he's helped, he's the one who helped save the early English settlers. And when Virginia is born, he knows he has to protect her because she's the first American and he's Captain America. And so who better to take care of the first baby born in the Americas? Uh, the first, but, not the first baby born, but the first English baby born yeah. in the but Americas. But he also wants to make a better America where the Native Americans and, you know, there's no genocide. Yes. That's his goal <laughs> to establish uh, from the very day one of the settlers there. They're going to establish peace between uh, the Native Americans and and the settlers. This is his goal. Uh, now, the X-Men with Nicholas Fury arrive in Roanoke, and they're welcomed by the governor, Ananias, who is Virginia Dare's father. He tells the people that Fury and his men have taken over their country so that James will spare them. Uh, Carlos now sends Angel and Iceman to freeze Magneto's ship. They freeze it, and then they uh, talk to him in a little bit. Uh, Clea and Virginia make it to the colony. Clea has Doctor Strange's head in a barrel. Pickled. Pickled in a barrel. <laughs> Uh, with, uh, whiskey, I think, or brandy well, just, or something. Yeah, yeah. The, the key thing is, uh, if you call what the Watcher told Dr. Strange while he was alive, uh, the truth of what's happening could not escape his lips. Yes. <laughs> and, and now that he's so, dead, he can talk through his, uh, disembodied head. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, so she pulls this head, pickled head out of a barrel and it starts talking to Reed and the others. Uh, they say they need to find the rift. Um, some kids in the village tell Virginia they know where it is. And so she leads everybody to it. Uh, Matthew Murdoch shows up to King James on his coronation night and threatens to kill him if anything happens to Fury. Speaking of Fury, he has to get Virginia's help to track down Rogers. So Rogers is gone because he doesn't want to go back. Uh, and Fury help, uh, Virginia helps Fury find him. And, uh, he wants, because Rogers wants to stay in his own time and help build this new America that's going to be way better. But Fury tricks him, as he often does with people. Uh, he knocks him out and he carries him through the rift. So there's this huge flash of light and everything is over. So what, so what has happened now? Well, the universe is saved. Uh, Rogers and Fury are gone. Uh, we're told that history is back on track. So history in Earth 616, the regular Marvel world, everything gets set back to what it was. The settlers of Roanoke uh, will starve or be captured. Virginia will be shot and killed while in the form of white deer. Uh, Clea goes back to wherever Clea is from. Where's Clea from? Uh, some astral plane world, okay. I think. Not our universe, essentially. So what happened when Rogers goes back through this thing is there's a split in the universe, and there is a new world created that's now called Earth-313, in which the characters, all of these superhero, 1602 superhero characters, get to stay and continue their stories in, in a world, in a timeline that's separate now from the regular Earth-616 world. And so, um, Javier and Magneto, uh, Magneto, <laughs> uh, they part ways on decent terms. Uh, Magneto charges, charges Carlos with taking care of his children, Petros and Wanda. Um, finally, oh, oh <laughs> and now we're almost done with this, but remember that flash of light when Rogers and Nicholas disappeared? Well, one of the king's men named Banner took the brunt of that light to protect young Peter Parqua. And now we see him as a giant gray hulk in the forest. And uh, Peter and Virginia, well, she invites him to stay with the people in Roanoke. And she says they will try and go and get his aunt and uncle out of England. But just before they walk off hand in hand into the sunset, a, a spider finally bites. A spider that was washed over in this strange glow of light. That was washed over in the strange glow of light bites Peter on the back of the hand. Phoenix. Yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> great job with a, a kind of crazy plot. That is a really strange story. <laughs> Um, one of the sequels, uh, to this is, uh, called Fantastic Four 1602. And that, in that plot, um, Victor Von Doom kidnaps Shakespeare and wants Shakespeare to write, uh, like his life story. <laughs> and the Fantastic Four have to go rescue William uh -huh. Shakespeare. I think it's called Fantastic Voyage. Oh, Fantastic Voyage 1602. And then there's 1602 New World, which has some Iron Man and... Yeah, like a steampunk Iron Man. Yeah. And then there's another one that's focused on Spider-Man. There's one that's called Witch Hunter something something. I okay. think that's from the, the recent Secret Wars stuff. Okay. Uh, real quick, the, uh, the, our previous episode on uh, a Neil Gaiman text was episode number 14, All of My Best Friends Are Dead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
which is not a sad thing in this instance when he says that in the graveyard book. Uh, All right. So uh, the the one thing in your summary that I, I said I wanted to get to, you didn't see the Rojas being no, Steve Rogers. Not, even, uh, not at all. And I'm so glad because I remember, Did like you? I said, when I, when, no, when I first read this month to month, I remember specifically not knowing, like, and, and reading articles, like debating, who is this, why, you know, pale skinned, blonde haired Indian? Rojas. <laughs> and then when it, it did the reveal, it's kind of like, oh. <laughs> you just feel like the biggest idiot. Well, and in some ways, I think it might be because I read it and I never said it out loud. And even I was reading these articles about it that was like giving us all the Easter eggs and like connecting all uh-huh. the dots of, well, like clearly, you know, this is Daredevil. Clearly these are going to be the Fantastic Four that are trapped right. uh, by Victor Von Doom. And, uh, but no one could figure out who this blonde <laughs> Indian was named Rojas. And I wonder if I just had a conversation with one of my brothers, like, who is this Rajas? Oh. <laughs> you know, then it would have clicked right there. Right. Uh, uh, but it was a great reveal, uh, and one that seems really obvious, um, once, once it's set out, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know, uh, there's a book that Neil Gaiman wrote called American Gods in which he has a character, uh, like the main character in that come, it, it, he's getting out of prison. I think is, it's been a while since I read it, but I think on the first, chapters him getting out of prison and his cellmate was named uh low key l-o-w hyphen key was his nickname oh uh-huh. uh but then and like you read it and then like at the uh spoiler warning near the end of the book you find out he's loki like the the norse god trickster god uh-huh. loki but it was another one where you're reading it and you don't make that mental connection <laughs> whereas if like you heard an audiobook i think that reveal would be gone yeah <laughs> oh yeah i totally didn't see it coming and um i'm happy that you didn't also <laughs> I, I thought I must be the only the only nerd that didn't see that, but uh, I'm glad that I wasn't. It's nice to know that that there there can still be surprises. I, I mean, I, I don't know. There are probably people that are like, "Oh, it's so obvious from the very beginning," but it just so, totally wasn't for me. Well, I, I remember like from the time when it was coming out, people speculating. And I don't remember anyone that I read uh, actually getting it. I thought it was a really cool reveal. Mm-hmm. And there's it is there a little is odd a that long... he's gone. So, so visually. In in the moment where the reveal happens, he has gone into the woods and he's kind of like smeared blue paint that you're not quite sure how how he got it yes. onto his face. <laughs> Leaving the so the visual of it is a little odd because all of a sudden he's got a smeared paint uh, a, mask like on Captain his face America with the, with the white A yeah. still there, um, which that part doesn't quite work. Like where they go crush some blueberries for some reason. Maybe. Like why in this moment does he do that? But like, it's a, it's a stunning moment when you turn the page and you see it. But then when you stop and try and take it apart, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this story was delightful. And the first time that I read it, I was not nearly as well versed in the Marvel universe as I am now. Uh, but, but even I was able to catch on to what was going on. So like Carlos Javier and, uh, the, the Grand Inquisitor, that was a surprise for me. I didn't, yeah, I didn't that, know that's that the that one was that they're not Magneto. So a lot of these characters, there's a winking, yeah. uh, you know, Nicholas Fury. That's clearly Nick Fury and they don't even try to hide it. Sure. Uh, but Stephen Strange. I'd say the Grand Inquisitor being Magneto is one that they kind of hid until the moment it needed to be revealed. Uh-huh. And same with, uh, Rojas being Steve Rogers. And that is a great, it is a great reveal when that guy comes in and he's like, I'm going to kill you. And then all of a sudden, I can't, the knife moves, the knife I think. moves yeah. And you go, oh. <laughs> Dude, that was really just a bad luck. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> wrong, wrong weapon to choose. Yeah, right. If you try to strangle him. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that's a great that's a great reveal. I just thought it was delightful to see this kind of. And this is again, as we said earlier, this is not the most earth shattering story ever. Uh, but it is. It's just delightful to see these characters in a different time and place. And we've mentioned before. I think. Uh, I can't remember what we were talking about, but we were saying that like a great character, some one way to think about a great character is what would they be like in a different time and place, in different circumstances, and would they still stand up as a character? And I think part of this is a test of that. So is Natasha uh, Romanoff still an interesting character, even if she's not uh, a child of the Cold War? And is is uh, Matt Murdock still an interesting character, even if he's not a blind lawyer? And I think for the most part, they hold up as characters. Yeah. And I'm glad you said uh, what you said about like reading it before you kind of knew. Cause uh, that's one thing I wondered uh, is how much of the enjoyment of the series is coming from familiarity 
with all of these characters and their place in the Marvel comic book universe and then how much of it is the story in and of itself. And I think you need some familiarity for it to hold up. Yeah, you have to. I don't think you have to have super in-depth familiarity. No, I mean, if you know the X-Men, you know Scott Summers and you know Carlos, uh, Charles Xavier and you know, you know Magneto. So, you know, Nick Fury. So I think you know the main, the main players here and, and Peter Parquois. I mean, it's just, it was really, I thought it was delightful. So, um, when we talked a couple weeks ago about a wrinkle in time, we tackled this issue of like, I abstract concepts, uh, instead of story. Yes. I don't think this one's getting into as many big idea kind of things, but I think this is another example of that. It, that it is more the idea than a character that drives this. And the idea being like, what if the Marvel superheroes yes. were in 1602, not necessarily having a clear, distinct protagonist that mm-hmm. evolves throughout. And 16, I mean, the early 1600s was a fascinating time. Oh, and I, it's clear Neil Gaiman did lots of research yeah. or, or was already well in, in you know well versed in this world because you have the political intrigue of England, you have the issues with settling a new col- you know a, a new continent, uh-huh. uh, you have the uh church uh you know the all the church issues uh-huh. <laughs> in Europe between Spain and England. Uh so the, they're clearly getting at or, or demonstrating a, a a really well-versed knowledge of that time period and then combining it in this, you know, fun and unique way with characters that uh, anyone who was buying 1602 would have known and loved. Yeah. So I think I, I, I do like the choice of time period. I mean, there are lots of other interesting time periods, but it is, it is an interesting thought experiment to think about if you could, if there were, you know, one year that you could go back to and just rewrite history, what would it be? Like one event that you could point at. And I think it's interesting that they've chosen 1602 and there were a lot of really interesting things happening in 1602 and mysterious things. And like the, the colony of Roanoke, there's a lot of mystery surrounding that and legend and, yeah. uh, and, uh, like the queen having a spy master. Well, (laughs) there was a lot of spy going on in uh the court. Uh, and yeah, and the inquisition and dealing with uh, purity of blood and the, the witch breed and, and burning witches. All of this fits, it fits well. It doesn't feel like he's tried to cram anything into this universe that doesn't, that doesn't seem to fit well. You have alchemy and, uh, all the, all the issues surrounding these, you know, go, uh, early modern alchemists and scientists and really trying to understand the world. And I think, and you have the superstitions of the unknown world. Yeah, Reed Richards, like what is on those I think Reed Richards fits well into that, into that world. And so does Dr. Strange. Uh, so, so I think that that's all really cool. Now there, there is one big idea that I, that I want to talk to you about. I think this is my first note. It is your first you note. T- okay. <laughs> it's the, it's the one thing that like really stood out to me. Uh, and I was looking at your notes and I noticed that it's the same thing. So there's this part where, uh, they're the, everybody's traveling back across the sea, um, back to the new world and Reed Richards is talking and he says that he was thinking, he's thinking about fundamental particles and, uh, she says like atomies and such. Who's the sheep? Oh no, this is a Johnny storm. I think says, uh, uh, like atomies and such. And he says, no, not those. Oh, Sue, it's uh, Su- Susan Reed says, what are you thinking? And he says, I'm thinking about Sue Storm or Sue Richards. I'm sorry. <laughs> she says, what are you thinking about? And he says, I'm thinking about fundamental particles. And Johnny Storm says, uh, oh, yeah, about atomies and such. And he says, no, those I thought about while I was in Doom Cellars. And then he says this, were it not for the misery he caused you, I would owe him thanks for the time uh, to think with no distractions. I was able to reduce many things to their fundamental principles, at least to my own satisfaction. Uh, and then he says this, the, the fundamental atoms or the fundamental principles are not atoms. They are stories and they give me hope. We are a boat full of monsters and miracles, hoping that somehow we can survive a world in which all hands are against us. A world which, by all evidence, will end extremely soon. Yet I posit we are in a universe which favors stories. A universe in which no story can ever truly end, in which there can only be continuances. Uh, and then he says, if we are in such a universe as I hope, then we may have a chance. And then uh, Johnny Storm says... You're talking rot, Reed. Poor Jean Grey's story is over. Von Doom's story is done. All tales end, and our world will end likewise. 
And then the thing says, Reed, you spoke of transmutations. Can you restore me to my humanity? I have been a monster too long. And then Reed says, in truth, I do not know, my friend. The natural sciences say, yes, a cure is possible. But the laws of story would suggest that no cure can last for very long, Benjamin. For in the end, alas, you are so much more interesting and satisfying as you are. So what do you make of this? It's crazy and I love it. <laughs> uh, the, so, I mean, he's doing – this series is incredibly postmodern. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so he's making commentary not just on the story but on the act of storytelling. Sure. Which is a really postmodern thing to be doing. Uh-huh. And, and I think particularly he's commenting on the nature of continuing superhero stories. Uh, Marvel Comics, DC Comics, these characters that uh, for – the most iconic are going back to World War II and, or the 1960s. Like, that's where the most famous superheroes were, and they've been in never-ending stories ever since. You know, the never-ending battle. And uh, I may have mentioned this before, but there's a really cool essay by Umberto Eco that talks about comic books needing to simultaneously be presenting a narrative which involves change, but also the characters need to stand as icons which are unchanging. So you need to present the illusion of change, uh, but constantly reset back to the iconic uh-huh. nature. Of these characters. So, uh, even though Superman stories have been told, uh, since 1938, the character never really is allowed to evolve into, like, he never grows old with Lois Lane and, you know, passes on to the next generation of superheroes. Sure. You always got to reset to Clark Kent being Superman and being, uh, you know, uh, early middle age. Sure. <laughs> kind of prime of life. And, and so there's no real evolution, but each story has to present the illusion of change for the readers to remain interested uh-huh. in it. And so I, I think Neil Gaiman is within this story offering kind of a similar commentary. So yeah, re, uh, Benjamin, maybe I'll be able to change you, but because your story, your, your role as a character in a grand narrative is really more interesting with you in this iconic state as kind of a tortured monster. It's always going to revert back to you being a tor- tortured monster. Uh-huh. So, so I think there's that commentary, but then there's this other part where he also seems on some level, we're saying this about life. Yes. <laughs> and so I, I think we can all be fully on board with that being kind of an insightful commentary on the nature of superhero comic books sure. and never ending stories. Uh-huh. But how much do we take this out and look at it in our own lives? So there's a woman named Eleanor Oaks and she talks about stories. Uh, she's a, she's a linguistic anthropologist and she talks about, uh, there are kind of two ways of talking about the past and one way is just this like jumbled series of events. And over time, as we repeat that jumbled series of events, it turns itself into a coherent narrative. And, and part of like working through traumatic past events is turning a jumbled series of random events into, into a story. And it's a really fundamental part of what we do as human beings is take the chaos of life and turn it into a narrative that makes sense to us. And as I was reading this and thinking about this like fundamental particle uh, of life or, or this like constant in our universe, uh, at least as we know it as, as humans, it seems like story is a really important part of who we are as human beings. I think it's absolutely an important part of our identity formation. Yes. Uh, how we see ourselves, um, and like you said, also how we make sense of the world. And that's why, uh, you know, the maxim that, uh, history is written by the winners. It's, I mean, it's not just the manipulation of events to make them look like good guys or anything like that. It's also any event is just so chaotic. You have to choose what details matter sure, <laughs> and who the key players were. Uh, but in reality, there are so many key players that, uh, you know, any history book that really tried to tell all of it could never be done. So you got to trim it down to a coherent story. Right. It's, um, what's the, what are the terms that we use for that receipt? And, uh, I'm not going to be able to help you with this receipt. I can't, I can't, I can't come up with the terms right now. There are, there are official terms for what you're talking about, which is that there is like, if you want to tell the story of the American civil war, there's an infinite number of possible, uh, elements that could go into that story, right? You could talk about the, the little grasshoppers, Bouncing, bouncing around in the, in the fields. That, yeah, like, Gettysburg, like you, right? You, yeah, you could talk about the topography. Uh, 
you, you can talk about. Which is actually, I mean, I, and, and uh, I was at Gettysburg last year, and the topography of Gettysburg makes a huge difference in, in the story. And, and some people tell that story, and it's really important where you are because you have to keep the high ground. And But other people can tell the story of, of uh, the Battle of Gettysburg and say, well, topography is not important, or the grasshoppers bouncing around, that's not important. What's really important is Chamberlain or whoever. And so... Uh, so you have this infinite number of possible elements uh, that you could go into your story, and you have to make choices about what are, what's going to go in and what's not. And so everything we do is is creating stories. And historians, as Hayden White is a famous historian who said, basically, all historians are just storytellers. And people say, no, this is crazy. They're not storytellers. They're, 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 car, yeah, they're, they're historians. They tell the truth. They tell the facts about things. And Hayden White says, no, actually, they use all the same techniques that storytellers do, which is they take a, an, an infinite number of possible stories and they make one. And every time they do that, they have to choose not to put some stuff into their story and to include other stuff. And every historian's going to do it differently. So, yeah, storytelling. I think storytelling is really, really important. Uh, I'll just drop this reference. If any of you happen to see a book called The Theory Toolbox, there's a really great chapter in there on history uh, that gets into a lot of these issues. Okay. So if you're just perusing shelves and you come across The Theory Toolbox, pull it down and look at the chapter on history. <laughs> um, uh, one quick example of you, you were saying like about how history like has all these factors that matter. Um, one example that uh, my brother, John, previous guest on the podcast, when we talked about uh, Spirit, Spirit Away, he, he's uh, told me that he was listening to the Hamilton soundtrack. Yes. Um, if you're familiar uh-huh. with Broadway musical Hamilton and it mentions this person who has such a great name that you'd think this would be something that every history book would tell you about, which is Hercules Mulligan. Yes. <laughs> who was a tailor who, uh, tailored the suits for the British and he was a spy. He, was he a listened spy. to all their conversations while he was their tailor and smuggled that information to the American colonists. Uh, so great name. And also once you hear that story, you're like, Oh, that seems like a really important part of American history right? <laughs> uh, of the revolution, but I had never heard of it until uh, this great Broadway musical kind of uh, made, made that character more known, which obviously this Broadway musical is based on a history book, uh, you know, a biography of Alexander Hamilton, but it, you know, it's, it's brought this character that just sounds like it would be great fanciful character that if you were telling the story of the American revolution, you'd want to have a character named Hercules Mulligan, who's a tailor <laughs> slash spy, but I never read that name in any history book in school right. <laughs> when I was growing up. Sure. Uh, and because he's deemed those, unnecessary. Yes. He's one of those facets that you can, you can trim away if you want to focus on, uh, the politics, sure. uh, you know, or focus on the American war generals and, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. So, so I, I agree with Reed Richards in that I think story is really important to the way that we create identity and that we make sense of our world. I think it's been a really important part of who we are as humans, at least since like, you know, early humans were painting stuff on caves and carving. I mean, like, like, a, yeah. like a, an extremely long time ago. I think it's interesting to think about story as the fundamental particle of existence, because it seems to me like what you and I are both saying right now is the stories are not the fundamental particle of existence. They're not the atoms. The atoms are just chaotic, random, infinite an infinite number of random chaotic events and that story is like one step further in this where we where we take those atoms and make like little molecules or cells or something out of them does that does thinking, this make like, sense yeah when you're trying to say it, i was thinking like story is our organizing principle yes <laughs> for the chaos of uh the universe but also the chaos of our lives sure <laughs> you know the chaos of existence um because there i mean there's just so much that happens to us every single day so many events that we actually witness but you think back on the day and you just kind of create this narrative of well i woke up and you know i, I went to work you know i kissed my kids goodbye whatever it may be you create this narrative that's very abbreviated that omits 99 percent of what you actually witnessed or, or experienced in a day there is um Something Sorry, producer Andrew popping it. Yeah, something I read about a while back, but scientists kind of measured how our brain constructs the present, like like mm-hmm. the chronological concept of the present. It's about 15 seconds long. It's like a sliding 15 seconds. That is your now, because <laughs> that's what it takes to construct your environment from your various stimuli and things like that and, and how you go through a conversation. It's about 15 seconds. So you walk into a room and your brain doesn't, 
immediately say, okay, chairs over here, and then everything else is blank until you look around and fill it in. You see an entire room, even though you must have focused on a dozen different things very quickly mm-hmm. to actually see them. I mean, this is also the principle of why uh, stereotyping is is a natural and important function of our mental <laughs> existence. Like, you, you can walk into a room and you're stereotyping when you just say, that thing on the wall is a light switch. You don't actually go and engage with it and study it out. You just say, I've got that object in my mind. I know what its function is because I've seen so many like it. You stereotype everything to to what its most likely function is. Now, the problem is obviously when stereotyping, uh, you know, goes against individuals, but stereotyping as a, as a mental function is important because there's just so much stimuli in the world. I am really struggling tonight. <laughs> trying to think of a, trying to think of a name of a book by Werner Heisenberg. I, I always struggle with, struggle with that. Uh, <laughs> it's his, I call that my daily struggle. That is my Sisyphusian task. <laughs> <laughs> figure out the names of Werner Heisberg's books. It's a, it's an autobiography and he talks about how he, he's talking to, uh, Niels Bohr and they're talking about, <laughs> okay. You said this is real though. This is, <laughs> this isn't, <laughs> yes, it's real. <laughs> like the setup for, for a joke. No, this is not the setup for a joke and, uh, <laughs> it's not in an alternate universe. It's this one. Although I can't find the book right now. Uh, the name of the book. I can't pull it out of my head or the recesses of my mind. Uh, but they're talking about the, they're, they were trying to figure out what atoms were made of before, before we had any clue about what was going on at that tiny, tiny level, atomic level. And, and, uh, Niels Bohr tells Heisenberg, he says, basically, when we're at the edges of what we know as scientists, we just revert back to poetry. And he says, like, all of his greatest, like, ideas about mod- models of, for atoms, they all came from poetry in the humanities. And, and that first he had to sort of use his imagination and create a story about what was going on. And then later he's able to prove it with science. And you can see that, I think, over and over again, we see in, in the history of science that people that break paradigms and really, uh, reimagine what is going on in the universe, people like uh, Einstein or Newton, uh, that they do it through stories. They tell, they have to tell themselves a story, first of all, about what's going on before they can prove it with math. Right, because they, you go up to the edge of what's known, uh, and that next step is into darkness. <laughs> that next step of uh, grasping at what's next. You build on everything that you have, but it needs to be an act of creativity. Now, I'm going to struggle for a name, but it's... <laughs> There's a really good essay about <laughs> not being able to come up with the names of things. Uh, about how uh, science needs the humanities, and that uh, that oh, oh I, you know what? I shouldn't even go down this because I can't even think of the author at the moment. Uh, but this it's always this, this whole conversation show? <laughs> is getting back to the concepts that we talked about with the wrinkle in time that all these human endeavors that often get segmented out in, and and uh, walled off from each other mm-hmm. really are all working together or should be working together. You know, the sciences and the sure. humanities. Anyway, Todd, uh, to pull us back. Physics into- and beyond encounters and conversations. Oh, I'm, I'm driving so myself nuts trying to think of my, my essay about creativity in the sciences. Physics <laughs> and beyond encounters and he conversations. Romeo and Juliet. It. Ah, oh, I can't, I can't even. Oh man. <laughs> pull it back. Uh, anyway, uh, back to Marvel 1602. Uh, <laughs> let's Todd, if you, uh, we only have a couple minutes to wrap up. So is, the, did you have a favorite character? Like we, we talk about great characters and great stories. Was there a favorite character for you in the story? I like Matt Murdock. Yeah. It's a really, really fun good. interpretation of Matt Murdock. Matthew Murdock, Daredevil, who is not, I cannot say is like my favorite Marvel character, but I felt like, I don't know. I felt like he got a little bit of extra love and attention. In this, the, he has a great sense of humor, and uh, I just he worked he worked as that character, uh, not just a, a version uh, that that character as a version of another character. He just worked as a character. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. Where uh, if you know Matt Murdock as the blind uh, lawyer who's tortured by his guilt and Catholicism <laughs> in, in Marvel Comics, uh, that's fine. But also, like he said, I think he's one that there's enough meat on on that character in this in this miniseries that it doesn't matter if you know him or not. Whereas not every other character, I, I would say, is that true. Yeah, and uh, I think a lot of them you kind of know. You need to know the Marvel version for you to care. Yeah, and I think some some of our listeners probably are familiar with like the Netflix's Daredevil. 
this is just so this character is so far from that character daredevil is a character in the in marvel comics that swings between swashbuckling fun and tortured darkness and this is way more this is way more swashbuckling fun and the netflix is like really tortured darkness (laughs) Yeah, so, like, some of the creators that have done the major torture darkness are Frank Miller and Brian Bendis, and they just, like, ran him through the ringer. Uh, and then we get these kind of course corrections sometimes, like, uh, Mark Wade did a recent run on Daredevil, which is considered, like, the return of the fun, swashbuckling, uh, joyful Daredevil. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's it's funny, because it, it's always Matt Murdock, and it's always feels like it's that character, but something about his history in the Marvel Universe and the way the character is developed allows you to have both those stories happen with Daredevil, cool. where... Uh, if you watch the next Netflix version and read this, I, I don't see though like they're different interpretations, but you can still see the same core there. Who, and it's not just, you know, that he's blind or whatever. Who did you like in this story? Uh, Matt Murdock was probably my favorite. After that, I would say probably, uh, Magneto. Okay. <laughs> I, I think he had some of the best moments. Yeah. Um, and he, when, when Magneto is just always, when he's done right, a fascinating villain. And I think even though it's more snippets, it's not his story or anything, they're still really interesting snippets. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, one character that I wish we had seen more of was, uh, is Natasha. Yeah. I think, mm-hmm. I think she's super interesting and could have played a bigger role in the story, but she kind of comes and then goes. Which, uh, very few of these characters really play major long lasting roles in this narrative. Uh, Nick Fury is probably the closest to a protagonist, but it isn't yeah. historian anyway. No, it's just, it really is an experiment and, and it's playful and, and I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I did as well. I think it's uh, worth the read. If you have any interest in Marvel comics yeah. or even these Marvel characters from, from other media, I think you'd probably enjoy reading this uh, again, maybe other than that discussion about uh, the the power of story, there's probably no real big grand ideas or themes within this. It's just kind of a, a fun romp with these yeah, characters. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, I believe that wraps up this episode. So thank you for joining us. And please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, we've got a few new reviews. We're up to 20, which is always exciting. I'd like to see us up that by five. Uh, so if you're one of those listeners who hasn't yet even got, gone and left a, a review or even a, a five star. And oh, and one of our reviews used the line, my, my life had no meaning before this podcast. Really? Yes, yes. And then they immediately called it hyperbole. But uh, a couple episodes back, I said you could go write a review using that phrase. And uh, uh, someone did. So thank you. Do you have anything you'd like a listener to write into an, an iTunes review, Todd? I can't imagine anything better than that. <laughs> Um, all right. Uh, links to everything that we've talked about in this episode, including some of the things we couldn't think of the names for, will be at protagonistpodcast.com. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where you can also find a list of all of our previous shows. And you can contact us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're all on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And uh, just one final call out for the month of April. We do have the promotion where if you go to patreon.com slash protagonist, uh, you can, uh, for, for less money than usual, you can buy some topics for us to discuss. And we appreciate everyone who has done that and everyone who will do that, including you, dear listener, listening to these words right now. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. It just barely came to me. It's (laughs) it's receipt and histoire.